Alright guys, are we ready to convene our third debate on communion? We are on, we are live. Uh, welcome everybody, thank you for joining us live on Facebook. Uh, for those joining us today, we are going to be continuing and probably ending today. I think that will be pertinent to end this today at least have some sort of unity, and then we can, of course, carry the conversations beyond here. It's a bummer. Like I'm going to say this. People need to show up on time, because you know what ends up happening? Is we end up having to rehash things for people who are showing up late, and they act like I never brought anything up, right? Jeremy, you didn't even bring it up. How come we're not talking about this? Well, I mean, you did show up 20 minutes late, so let's talk about that. Um, so thank you for those joining us today. Welcome for those visiting. And I will say this, that um, this might be difficult. So if you're feeling like you're having to play catch up right now, that's okay. We can talk about this later. Um, so let's get our uh, meeting started here this morning uh, with some time in prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. What a, what a blessed place to live. As I looked at the mountain this morning walking in and the change of the weather just reminds me of your faithfulness, your preservational power, and how you care for us, how we're such fragile creatures that if anything were to change in the distance from the sun, in the rotation of the earth, or any creational ordinance, that we would perish. And Lord, you care for us. You love us. It demonstrates your love and concern for your people and how you truly bless those who, although in rebellion towards you, you care for them and nurture them. And you bless those who are in Christ. Lord, I pray this study would be a, a blessing today. Our, our conversation would honor you and that we would come to some unity on the importance of an ordinance, a command that you had given that we should observe as often as we gather together. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in the course of our study, we are doing a study in historical theology. It's been an ongoing study for some time now. And um, really, it's, we're trying to seek to better understand developments of theology from the early New Testament period, from the Gospels and on, really, is what, is what this study is about. The study, if you're interested... The textbook that we're working through is Historical Theology by Alistair McGrath, and it's the second edition I used. This book I used for school, and it was fantastic. It was an amazing book, um, very good reference for this sort of study. And so we are studying in Case Study 3.3 of the Reformation and Post-Reformation periods on the nature of <clears throat> the real presence, we're saying real presence of Christ, uh, in the Eucharist or in the ordinance of communion, uh, and that we are studying the views of Luther, of Zwingli, uh, and also the Roman Catholic position as well as uh, Calvin's position. And so, for any questions for clarification, I'm happy to do that. I have all of my notes here today, and we'll also be referencing our official position uh, on the Lord's Supper in the London Baptist 1689 Confession. So, for those who are unfamiliar with the references that I'll be making and using, there they are for you. Now, the debate, if I might summarize it in a few ways, could be said, one, we need to consider that the Lord's Supper was something that Christ has commanded that we observe. And it was to be observed as often as we gather together. That, I believe, has been motioned and settled in this debate. We should be observing it often, as often as we gather together. We have a, a conviction in our church that we, we observe it every Lord's Day. And so, I, is there any concern or question about as often as we gather together? No. Nay. The nays have it? Yes. Thank you for that question. Yeah, so if we, and also if we can have a, a microphone so everybody can hear and those can hear the questions online, that'd be awesome. 
the question was asked, what are the other views? The other views uh, that tend to lean more towards um, a, let's say, a biannual, maybe they do it every, or they have a specific day that they do a topical teaching, and at the end of that topical teaching, once a year, they observe it together as a church. Some observe weekly, some not. And then some really rarely ever do it at all. And it's just something that they kind of pick a point and they just, they're in the text and they go, well, let's do communion, you know, as they're they're reading through uh, the Gospels or maybe through 1 Corinthians, right? Um, Those views tend to lean more towards the memorial perspective. And let let me explain. So there are four primary views of communion. The first being the Roman Catholic transubstantiational, and no in particular order, by the way. Uh, the Roman Catholic, these views extended actually from the Roman, so I guess there is a, an order. The Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation was the body and the blood were actually converted substantially to the actual body and blood of Christ. Although the effects appeared the same, the substance was indeed the body and blood of Christ. Luther struggled with that, and Luther wanted to come up with an alternative perspective. He didn't believe substantively that they were the body of Christ or the blood of Christ. So he came up with a concept called the consubstantiational view, which is Christ is very much with the, the, the actual ordinance, but he is not in or of the ordinance. He's not substantially a part of it, but he's still with it in a significant way. It's just not his actual blood and body. And then Calvin came up with another view that was kind of a balance between uh, Zwingli and Luther, which is what's called the spiritual nourishment view. And the spiritual nourishment view holds a high view of the communion. It's not, he didn't like Luther's explanation in the sense that Christ is with it, but it was a sign and a seal. There's something particular, it was was a, um, a means of grace extended to the partaker and the church as a whole. Calvin. Yep. John Calvin. Geneva. And then the fourth and final view is the Zwinglian view. Zwingli didn't agree with Calvin, Luther, or the Roman Catholic Church. He held to a memorial perspective. And the memorial perspective basically said it was something that Christ given to us to remember him by. And remembrance was a really important uh, term that he stood upon and believed that it was more of the remembrance aspect of it. It was not something in particularly, it was no extension of a means of grace. It wasn't a sign and seal. It wasn't, Christ was not with the elements. It was just something that we, as often as we gather together, remember him by. They all hold a high view, we have to remember. Not one holds a high view over the other. Um, we believe the Roman Catholic perspective, in its high view, um, it, tends to take, well it does, it takes a Aristotelian metaphysic position on the elements, substantially, you know, the, the substance and the, and the accidents. Accidents meaning the, the outward appearance and the substance being the actual formal substance itself. We disagree with that. <clears throat> we also don't take the Lutheran perspective that Christ is actually with it in some meaningful way. He's actually with the elements itself. We believe that it's a spiritual nourishment, that it's for the benefit of us personally and for the body of Christ, that it is a sign and a seal. There's, there's a particular means of grace afforded to us as partakers. Uh, and so we don't hold the Zwinglian view, which says it's mere memorial. And so if you hold a memorial view to answer Grant's question, it then, it then becomes more of like, well, we, we can observe this, and, the, and there's, there's grace in the time frames and when we can observe it. So I've been in churches personally where, you know, it's something that's more of like, as we've kind of passed through it in the text, say uh, they're teaching through one of the Gospels or First Corinthians we're going to read from today, they'll go, hey, you know what, at, let's just take this opportunity to partake together. More memorial, it's a remembrance thing, right? Or they'll, they'll maybe have a specific time in their liturgical calendar where they do it together once or twice a year. That's, that comes from a memorial position. Does that answer your question? Right. <laughs> yeah. Let's use uh, the microphone. What, what do they say specifically to that verse that provides the justification for as often as you gather? Like, do they refute a different interpretation for that specific text? Yeah, they think it's uh, adiaphora, and that just means that there's a, 
a particular measure of grace in the New Testament that as often together is in an explicit command. It's more descriptive than prescriptive, which I don't know how they come to that conclusion. To be honest, that would be an argument I would use if I was engaging with them. I, I have actually never had a formal argument with a pastor who has a more memorial view. Um, so I don't know. But I would definitely use that. I would say, well, there, we would say it is prescriptive. When Jesus gave the command that as often as you gather together, that you should do this in remembrance of me, he meant that as often as you gather together, you should do this in remembrance of me. Maybe there might be more debates around the spiritual nourishment, the width, and the presence, but I think that it's pretty explicit that you should do it as often as you gather together. So I don't know. Jonathan, have you ever had interaction with people? Barrett, can we get him the mic? We're going we're gonna to get your uh, blood flow going right here. So the question is, is um, for those who hold a memorial view, who don't observe communion as often, what would maybe some of their arguments be if you were to address them with, well, how do you reconcile as often as you meet together? Well, I think the exact wording of the text isn't so much as often as you meet together, it's as often as you do this. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And they also use that, okay, that to, makes sense. Yeah, to defend their, well, this is only a memorial view, there's no means of grace attached to it. So um, if, I could, if I could explain, as often as you do this in the sense of as often as you hold the Passover. Yeah, that whenever you do it, do it in remembrance. So in essence, they could say, we hold the Passover once a year in an acknowledgement that communion is an extension of the Passover Seder, but it's ultimately a shadow that would be recognized fully in Christ. And so we observe it once a year. And when we do that, we partake of the communion together. Is that yeah. a fair? Okay. Well, and that would still be, but that would still be um, description versus prescription. Okay. So a lot of what we draw, we draw from Acts chapter 2, because it says as much as they were gathering, they were always breaking bread. That's why our concept of communion today reduced to a, a fragment of a cracker and a, you know, a chintzy little cup of wine, or well, mostly grape juice, right? We, we miss out, I think, on the fullness of it. Yeah. That, there, that it's supposed to be... You know that we are that we are to join one another in triumphal procession as we come with glad hearts to the Lord's table. But it is a celebration of of the new covenant. Remember, the new covenant instituted in His blood was a victorious act. That's why you know it, this whole thing about oh we have to be so somber and downtrodden, you know, and only that right, <laughs> rather yeah. than joyful, joyful and triumphant. But um, anyway, I think the, the whole thought of rather than doing this monthly or even annually and doing this every Lord's Day, is a recognition of its importance. That if we are the new covenant church, yeah. it is important and appropriate that we commemorate the very foundation of the new covenant every time we gather corporately. Yeah. It almost seems absurd not to. And there are texts that when they did meet and gather, thank you for that, that's a good point, as often as they gathered together, they shared a love feast. Um, and it was those love feasts in 1 Corinthians 11 that are referenced that um, people were being cast aside or not considered or and exalted unduly. Yes. Is that why we get it in the regulative principle for having yes. it during service, the, the worship service itself? And then how would we compare that to those like Capitol Hills that puts it in the evening service uh, as opposed to just like their normal Lord's Day gathering? I, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I don't know what Capitol Hill's official stance is on it. Now, the expression, practically speaking, would suggest they hold a different position or view than we do since they have a different service for it or in an evening-only service, whereas we would say this should be something that's a part of the, every gathering. And there's a number of reasons why that we share that. It's not that, that we just get to arbitrarily decide when that happens, but there is something to be said about various positions holding it in a different, you know, holding a different view. Um, that there's probably points of contention and points of argument that are valid. Uh, I haven't. Yeah. I, again, I haven't even engaged. Yes, Brian, you have something. Yeah, I would say that uh, uh, whether it, it is. It should be specifically prescribed this way. I think there's safety as well in doing what we do, holding it within the context of the worship service, 
and holding to the regulative principle that also prevents us from making it something that it's not, going outside of the framework or the boundaries of what's written. Yeah, and here's what, let me, I think this will help provide, so let, let's, just, let's just defer to the confession here. Um, in 31, chapter 30.1, it says, The Supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night he was betrayed. It is to be observed in his churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of himself and his death. It is given for the confirmation. I think so. this second sentence is key. Think about not just what we are observing in the sense of what Christ accomplished on our behalf as Christians in general, but what, is it, what does this say about the church and the church gathering? I think this helps provide maybe more a better answer for Christians' point which is, it is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all benefits of Christ's death. So this is a, an, a, an affirmation, a confirmation of the benefits to us as a result of Christ's death. And then, it is for their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him. Why would we want to limit that to some point uh, in, the, in the calendar? One limited point. Whereas it should be something that is as often as we, we can take it, we should, in this sense that um, this is for our benefit. It is for a confirmation of, of the benefits of Christ's death on our behalf, and it's also for our personal benefit and nourishment and growth in Him and further engagement in, all up in, in and to all the duties they owe Him. So the supper is to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with Christ with each other. Yes. Thanks, Kevin. I think to speak to the Capitol Hill thing, I don't know exactly what their stance is, um, but to have it at night, oftentimes a lot of churches will look at that like as as the members are going to be there, you know, at night, um, as opposed to you know the, the Lord's Day morning service. But the problem with that, I think, is you know, are they making are they making the night service part of the regular principle? You know, that that's questionable. I think. I mean, as far as uh, you know, how they view that, I don't know. For those who are unfamiliar with the regulative, regulative principle, I'm not sure that. Yeah, regulative principle is, uh, you know, simply put, like we, we worship according to what is, is prescribed and commanded in the, in the New Covenant. And then there's, there's the normative principle, which would say that if the Bible does not forbid it, it is permissible. Which we get a lot of weird stuff, and the Puritans you know, would have called that will worship. When, and when you say will worship, what do you mean? For those who might not Worshiping be according to one's will and desires, you know, which is not prescribed in the Scriptures. Yep. So to understand, regulative principle is what has been explicitly commanded that we are to do, and what is not, we are not to do. Simply put, normative principle says what, whatever, so do what has been explicitly commanded, but if, if it hasn't mentioned it or uh, spoken something contrary against it, there's freedom, there's adiaphora, there's ability to actually have freedom of expression. And that's where will worship, this desire where I, I will to do this, and I believe this is worship. That's, that's something that is acceptable and tolerable according to the Scripture, yes. Also now, real quick too, what's kind of strange, you'll, you'll see some churches that are, you know, EP, like exclusive psalmody, because they believe that that is, you know, part of the regular principle of worship. In Some terms people of, might not know what that means. Can you explain? Yeah, that? exclusive psalmody is is worshiping only in music from the psalms, right? And so some churches will hold to that, but yet they won't have. Like I know of a church, particularly Presbyterian church uh, that I went to at one point and visited, uh, but they'll do they'll do the communion at night, which is kind of strange in a sense where they're you know. Weighing on one side, saying, you know, we're going we're to do this because we feel this is a very regular principle. But then, but then communion, we're going to just do that later on at some different point in time. Yeah. Kind of odd. Yeah, so what we're trying to weigh here is when is the appropriate time to take it. Right? So what we want to be unified on is that as a church, are we in agreement that we observe it as often as we gather together because we believe that that was a regular, as Jonathan explained, from uh, Acts, that it was a regular pattern of the church that as often as they met together, they broke bread together. 
And the breaking of bread was a reference, I believe, to the love feast. Fair enough? Yeah. And that love feast is exactly what Paul's addressing here in 1 Corinthians 11. I asked you guys to take some time and actually work through this 1 Corinthians 11 passage. I'm going to read it now. But uh, let's, let's look at it and, and then let's think about what Paul's actually saying about the Lord's Supper. Be, think very careful specifically about the words used. This is the Lord's. Okay? Uh, but in the following instructions, starting in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Remember, they're gathering together, okay? And it's, it's bad. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. What is something God hates? Divisiveness within the body. Causing divisions within the body. Why? Because Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, has broken down the foundations and the walls of all people groups. And we are now one in Christ. Right? Specifically Jew and Gentile. But that goes to barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, all these things. Right? We are one in Christ. And there is not to be preferential treatment of some groups over others. And that's exactly what's happening here in the love feast. Okay? Uh, for there must be uh, factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It is the Lord's Supper they're eating together. The love feast is called the Lord's Supper. Okay? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Wow, one goes hungry and another gets drunk. They had real wine in the Lord's Supper. Just in case anybody's disputing that today, this is what was happening. They're getting drunk off it. And what does he say? He says, what? <laughs> Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? So think about this. What's happening is there's some who are like, man, I'm going to get as much as I possibly can while other people are waiting in line. Dudes are getting smashed and hammered. And here's still people waiting in line. People are glutting themselves. And what happened? There's no food left at the end. That's messed up. Right? Yes. The love feast was an opportunity to feed the poor. Especially right. the poor among them. So they're yes. glutting themselves and getting drunk. There's no, there's no bread and wine left for, right. for the poor. Which is messed up, right? Because Paul's like, really messed up. hey, you guys, you have your own houses to eat and drink at. There are some people among us that don't. It's the most inhospitable thing that you could possibly do. Here's, a, here's, a, here's a, an opportunity where we could actually love our community. We open up uh, our walls of our home. Back in the day, they were meeting in houses at this time. We get to open up our home. We get to celebrate and worship the living God together. And then we get to enjoy a meal together. And it's our time to actually love our neighbor who maybe doesn't have as much as we do. And they're like, nope, I'm going to pile this plate up, dude. I'm going to get hammered. This, this dude doesn't even get me. That's messed up. Okay. Or do you despise the church of God, humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Nope, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I will also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Something we should be doing often. I, I think that makes an easy argument for that. Now, that would seem to be a really weird place to place this passage. Right? He's, well, what is Paul doing? Paul's saying, here's the problem. Here's what the Lord has required of us. And here's what you should be concerned about when you're doing this in the midst of this love feast. Here's the concern. Verse 27. Therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord... We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This goes to our next point, which I hope to settle today. Are we good in terms of how often we, we eat and drink together? Yes, Grant. 
Grant gives a thumbs up. We have all eyes in the room. Say aye. <laughs> After attending multiple assemblies now. I kind of like that organization. Yes. Let's get Jonathan the microphone. Just, just to clarify, we wouldn't look at, say, your average Bible church who commemorates that once a month and say, oh, you're in sin. Yes. I mean, we're pretty much what I would call a capital O-U-G-H-T. We ought to do, to, to do this every Lord's Day. Yes. Because it's so important. Yeah, and I think the reason why, I, again, I think it's so important, but just look at what the confession says here in point one. Not just about what we're observing, right? So then there's the observation and a recognition of what the Lord's table is. But look at, listen to this, what it's saying. It's given for the confirmation of the faith of believers, important for all of us, in all the benefits of Christ's death. That's the observational nature. Here's the benefit that we're observing today. But then look at the next, the next issue, right? There's spiritual nourishment and growth in Him. This is necessary for our spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ. And then, further engagement in and to all the duties they owe Him. There's a certain pattern of life that you should be living throughout the week as you're acknowledging Christ as Lord in your life, that when you know that you're coming to the table, as we spoke about what, what would bar you from coming to the table, which is our next point of discussion, one second, would be something that should be ever before your mind throughout the week as part of your nourishment and growth in Christ. And then lastly, the supper, the supper, the Lord's Supper, the same one, is to be a bond and a pledge of their communion, the community, in Christ with each other. We are saying by something, I'm recognizing the benefits. I need this for spiritual growth and nourishment. I recognize and acknowledge that I need to live a certain pattern of life and all the duties that I owe Christ throughout the week. And I'm also making a bond and a pledge and a commitment to the body of Christ. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't have much more. I just, I just thought, like, in, in conclusion, while our confession, in keeping with our confession, we would say, wow, it seems kind of crazy or absurd that we wouldn't observe this Often. Every week, we still don't use it as a grounds of condemnation no. toward other, yes. you know, church elders or, yeah. you know, congregations. Just we, so what we're clear on that. Yes, we would say that they're, they're, they're likely in error. I believe they're in error. But is it, is it a, in a, such an egregious error that they would be unorthodox? I, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. There's debate there. But we'll not have that today. I would say that there are other churches when they're observing it, you know, their brothers and sisters in Christ, I think they're mistaken. You know, like, so, like those people who baptize kids, infants. We're talking about that next week for those interested. Because um, we're going to talk about the two ordinances that were debated during the Reformation period. So communion and then baptism, who needs to be baptized? Well, we want to fulfill this command. Who, sh who are the ones that are, that are to be baptized? So think about this, guys. It's not just about us personal. We need to stop personalizing communion. Both and. It's a personal acknowledgement, and it's also a bond and a pledge to the community that you're among. When we walk forward and we partake of this, you are saying to your brothers and sisters in Christ, I am free from unrepentant sin, gross unrepentant sin. I am free from causing divisions in the body of Christ. I am not under church discipline in any way. And I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who has been baptized and made a public profession of my faith and I am in fellowship with you. It's a beautiful thing when you think of it that way. Are we good? Ken, turn On that line, uh, on that same line, we're not only saying it to each other, uh, we're also making the same proclamations to the Holy Spirit. Right. Well, that's the bond and pledge. So that's the actual um, further engagement in and to all duties that they owe him. Speaking of you know, the lordship of Christ in one's life, right? This is something that we're ever keeping before our... We're thinking of it should be for our minds, right? Bound to as frontlets, right? Before our eyes. That it's ever before us as we live and uh, navigate our week. The Lordship of Christ in all matters of life and faith. Right? Okay, we good? Can I get a second? A motion now to move on to the next point? Okay, I got a second. Move on. Thank you very much. We'll move on. Now, the second point that we brought up was we have meeting often, how the frequency of the meeting. So we have, we have an understanding of what uh, communion is. We now understand how often we ought to do it. 
what would be the thing that stops people from taking it? Okay. Do we hold a view? Should we hold a view where we just let come one come all? Or should there be a barring or a fencing of the table? And this view is founded upon what Paul says right here in 1 Corinthians 11. There's reasons why people should not be taking communion. He addresses here divisions in the body. Preference of one, oneself over others. Intentionally creating divisions right in the body. There are other reasons though too. Unrepentant sin. Gross unrepentant sin. Things that, that Christians should never ever be dabbling in, doing things, right? Things they should be called to repentance from that's unconfessed and unrepentant. Why? What does Paul say? This applies equally to those causing division. That they drink judgment upon themselves. They are not examining themselves to see if they be in the faith. But they're living, in, think about this, in a life that's the engagement in and to all duties that they owe him are Fail, they're failing in those things. And they're doing it unrepentant. right? So we have a mediator, faithful, that we can go to to confess our sins to and who is faithful to cleanse and heal and restore. Christians can live in gross unrepentant sin. That's a possibility. And if they do, so they claim Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they're not living in the, in the life that they know that they should be living, they have they are, they will be as they examine themselves here. Let them examine themselves, and then so eat and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And we're, and he's using the language. This is the Lord's cup. This is the Lord's bread. This is His body. This is His is given to us. It is something that is set apart. Now, Doctor Willie, if you try to go through and rehash everything that we've already gone through up to this point, bro, I will not answer your questions. I will defer it to a future meeting personally. <laughs> oh, no, you're good, bro. I'm just kidding. Man. You know, i got to give you a hard time. So, um, this is the Lord's. This is something that is devoted to Him. We brought up the language called karam. Something that has been wholly set apart and devoted to the Lord. Okay? That language, look at and it's consistent throughout the Old Testament and into the New. And I use the example of Ananias and Sapphira as my case for that. There's a continuity of the judgment of God on those who drink judgment upon themselves as something that has been devoted to the Lord. It is the Lord's. I'm, you want to say something, Greg? Okay. So as something that's been devoted to the Lord, think back, we use the Ark and Uzzah as the Old Covenant example. What happened to Uzzah when he went to try to rebalance the Ark as it was stumbling to fall off the cart that it should have never been on? He dropped dead. Why? Why would God do something like that? He's just trying to restabilize the ark. That's pretty jacked up, right? Why did, why did God kill him? Yes. Barrett. Because he touched it in an unprescribed manner. Which is where we get the regulative principle of worship. Now you might think, what does the ark of the covenant being on a cart and being restabilized have anything to do with the regulative principle of worship. Well, God had prescribed the ark not to be put on a cart. That was the first mistake. And then as it was on the cart, it was actually there, there were two rods that were supposed to be put through either side of it and it was to be carried by four people. That was a prescription. Now, what happened is they put it on a cart. It started stumbling as it was going down the road. Uzzah went back to try to balance it out and he smote him. That's part of it though. The ark was prescribed to be made in a particular way and there were certain contents in that ark that were made a certain way. And those are all devoted to the Lord. It has to do with the holy presence of God. Uh, it has to do with the same uh, line of thinking of take off your sandy sandals, you're standing on holy ground. Why would you have to take off your sandals? Differences wearing sandals or not on holy ground have to do with anything. God said so. Take your sandals off. This is holy ground. Well, you have dirty feet. Your feet are dirty. No, I want you to walk on your bare feet in front of me. I want you to be fully exposed. God required. That's his, that's his mandate. Now, 
Think about where the ark, where was the, where was the ark positioned in the camp? Huh? It was in the middle of the camp. This is a circle, right? The camp basically was in, uh, around the tabernacle. What did the ark represent in the center of the camp? God's presence. God's holy presence. It was dangerous to be in the presence of the living God. You guys remember we talked about how the high priest went in there once a year with a rope around his waist? What happened to the high priest if he went in there with a conscience defiled and failed to confess his own sins with a clear conscience and the sins of Israel? What happened to him? He died in the holy presence of God. It was the holy presence of God that destroyed Israel whenever they brought sin into the camp. Do you guys you know those stories? You're like, man, those are like brutal stories, right? Think about the, the uh, offering of the pro- profane fire, right? Nadab and Abihu. You think about taking plunder that God said was devoted to him during the campaigns in Israel as they were taking Canaan. What happened to the camp? God destroyed those people. Like He plagued them. Wiped them out. Swallowed them up in the ground. I mean, it was bad. The Ark of the Covenant represented the holy presence of God. And notice it has two cherubim that are over the top of it. You remember, what were the cherubim guarding when Adam and Eve were booted out? The presence of God. Where the presence of God met man on earth. Heaven and earth met in Eden. They guarded the people. Why? For their safety. They can't be in the presence of God and be sinful people. Something has to be reconciled. And the cherubim were guarding the entrance of the presence of God really for the safety of them. But they would have killed people if they passed. They had flames. Yes. Jonathan. No, you're good, bro. I mean, random thought, but maybe this could lend to our understanding of, of communion. Um, I don't know what that may be, but I was also thinking, you know, the sword, the sword of Eden, as it were, yes. kept, also kept man from reaching out his hand and living forever, thereby him living forever under the curse. Curse, And exactly. yet still living forever. So it's not eternal life. No. It's cursed life forever. It's the curse of life forever, but to die, we know that the ultimate end, you know, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, sin brings forth death, and in Adam all die. It actually was a merciful thing to not allow man to live forever in his condemnation. That's a whole different topic of conversation. But that was a place that was devoted to the holy presence of God, guarded by cherubim. What was on the curtains, the veil between the holy, the, the most holy place where the ark sat and the entrance. What was on the veil? Embroidered cherubim. There were cherubim over the provision of the Ark of the Covenant. What was inside of the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, and Aaron's staff, which had budded. God's selection of leadership, God's provision for nourishment, spiritually speaking, right? God's, God's holy provision for all things, and his law. And it represented His holy presence. And so if you defiled it, He wiped you out. God's holy presence is dangerous, which is why we need a mediator. We need someone on our behalf, a high priest, which is what the shadow of the high priesthood represented. This is what the author of Hebrews is getting at in the later chapters. Specifically 8, 9, and 10. Where He goes on our behalf, and He had to be perfect. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf. He, in a sense, on our behalf entered into the holy presence of the Lord, bore the wrath by taking our sins upon Him, but because He was perfect, no sin was within Him, He was able to endure that. And because He was the second person of the triune Godhead, He was capable of enduring that wrath on our behalf. He did not die, well, He did die, but then was raised again on the third day, right? because He is God. Death could not keep Him. And that's what's so beautiful about the Gospel when we recognize you have a perfect high priest who is able to offer a sacrifice which is his own blood on your behalf once and for all for all time. And the blood of goats and bulls were incapable of cleansing your conscience before God and had to constantly be reoffered. This once and for all sacrifice is now capable not only of perfectly cleansing you, but cleanse your conscience before the living God. Do you want to share something? He's not on. He's just talking like super mumbly under his breath. Are you guys pushing the button? There's a no touchy stick sticker on there. It's better not be. Just speak up, dude, because we're going to run out on time. Oh, man. Wait, wait. they got to bring you another mic. we got to hear this. It's really hard to hear you, bro. 
So it's hard because so there, these two things have fans. And like Yo, if you're sitting you right here, bro, it's like Man. a yeah. Are we live? There we go. Yeah, I mean, just on what you're saying as far as karam, uh, which is most holy, and then and then holy, uh, big distinction there. You know, with with holy, the Hebrew was was kadesh, kadash. Um, what's interesting about the about what's what's holy versus most holy? Most holy was karam. So two different words. These were used throughout the you know the distinctions in tabernacle and various things Jeremy's mentioning. But um, you know what was what was kadash or kadesh holy could have been bought back at some point, right? But what was karam was unredeemable, unredeemable because it was devoted. Is devoted to God, right? And so we we see a connection with that to the supper. Yes, this being the Lord's property. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just thought I'd throw that one out there. Yeah, and that's why I keep bringing it up. Uh, whoever, verse 27, drinks the cup of who? Like our cup? Someone else's cup? It's the Lord's cup. It's the Lord's supper. Um, that's what he says in the very beginning here. Um, verse 20. Is not the Lord's supper that you eat? Is something that he's given you? That's devoted to him. So let me use the example to build some continuity here. Whenever anything was taken that was devoted to the Lord, it was destroyed, basically. It was destroyed by what? The holiness of God. <laughs> and the holiness of God for us is dangerous. That's why you take your sandals off when you're stepping on holy ground. That's why when God's presence is in the center of the camp of Israel, it's dangerous. God was literally, if you could, if you could say it this way, He had a special presence where He did not fully avail Himself to the whole world and rejoin heaven and earth. It would have wiped everyone out. There was a special presence of God in Israel for the time to bring a shadow of what would ultimately come in Christ. That's why the Great Commission is where everything in heaven and earth is Christ. Go therefore, because it's all His. His holy presence is now being recognized where? Who's the holy temple now? Being built up by the Spirit of God. Ephesians. Who is it? Who? It's the church. All of us. The holy presence of God. That's dangerous for the world. But it's in us. We're the ones being built up as the holy presence of God in all the earth by conveying what? The gospel. We're bringing the light to the nations of God's holy presence. We are a what? Devoted people to Christ. Start connecting that language. So, when Ananias and Sapphira were doing a good thing with their property, what did they say? We are, <laughs> this is a huge no-no, devoting this to the Lord. We're going to sell it off. We're going to devote this to the Lord. Let your yes be yes, God says. Which is a good thing. And what do they do? They're like, dang, man, this sold for some good, good coin here, man. I didn't realize it was worth that much. You know? <laughs> wow. Here they are doing a great thing for the church. They want to provide for the church. And then what ends up happening? Ananias cruises in. He's like, here we go, man. Yeah, dude, you guys got the property. Dude, good sold. Here's the money. What does Peter say? You think like, can you imagine being like in the presence of this at the time? Right? And you're just like, wow, man, these guys are, whoa, they just hooked the church up fat to use modern day parlance. That's good. Man, dude, these guys are some spiritual people, right? What happened? Peter's like, why do you, what do you think, bro? You think you're pulling one over on man? Nope. You lied to the Spirit of God. You lied to the Holy Spirit Himself. And now God requires your life. What? That is such a mind-blowing instance in the New Testament. It is using direct continuity between what had been devoted to the Lord in the Old Covenant, the same requirement that God had for the Old is in the New. So there's continuity there. What happened to him? He fell dead. That's messed up. Then his wife cruises in, right? <laughs> right after that, as they're carrying his body out. Sapphira, what, why, why have you brought it to your mind to do such a thing? Are you kidding me right now? You're dead too. Bam! She's gone. Because they had done what? Devoted something to the Lord. They had given it, set it apart to the Lord, sanctified it, right? What does Jesus say about His Word and His high priestly prayer in John? Lord, set them apart with Your Word. Devote them to You. They are most holy by Your Word. They are made most holy. You are utterly set apart. And then what does he say about the distinction between the people and the world? 
there's a worldly system which is perishing, and then there's those who have been set apart, wholly devoted to him by his word. His word is true, and that's what sets you apart. That is how you're built up as a temple in Christ by the word of God. And yeah, it's the holiness of God is dangerous. It was dangerous to Ananias and Sapphira, and it's dangerous today. So, Dr. Willie asked an important question. How come we don't see a bunch of people dying when they walk up to the Lord's table? I think that's actually very, a very fair question. Okay. Um, let me say this. You don't know that they're not. And that doesn't necessarily have to be instant like it was with Ananias and Sapphira. And the Lord might also be very gracious to us in our misunderstanding and our ignorance of His supper. But would you tempt the Lord, Dr. Willie? Would you tempt the Lord? Something that is devoted to Him, like Uzzah, and try to restabilize the ark and go, nobody's going to die, man. I could just live in gross sin, dude, and do my thing. Jeremy's just trying to you know, instill fear in people, right? Just like any good pastor would. And uh, he's trying to terrify people, and that's how, you know, and then the atheist would look in and say, that's how, that's how the church controls people. Yes. Is that what's happening here? Or is, it there, is there a really clear warning that we need to take seriously that should, as a pastor and as a church body whole, collectively, take seriously and not take flippantly? Yes. Along those lines, a couple observations. One, we have to remember God is incredibly gracious. He's very, He's very gracious. patient. Very patient. Yeah, exactly. We also see a, a pattern of continuity between old and new. Yes. That when the old covenant was first instituted, Judgments for violating certain statutes came, uh, I would say, more quickly and more severely. For instance, the man gathering sticks on the Sabbath, right? We think just a bunch of sticks, right? It's messed up, They take this guy out and stone him, right? He needs to be put to death. Yeah. You know, and, and so there was a severe judgment. We don't see that as an established pattern throughout the Old Testament that people are just getting stoned left and right. No, no. You know? Yeah. Over sin, and so I think in the same way as w- when when those covenants are first established, yes. God, I would say, not contrary to His own nature or to His own standard, applies He applies that standard, however, perhaps in a more severe way. Yeah, I mean, for lack of a better description, to let us know He's serious. I would say so. the old covenant is more severe and was was ultimately severe on Christ and the cross. So the difference between, so he was the true Israel, right? Uh, to use Jonathan, why was it so severe with the people? Well, remember, the holy presence of God is dangerous to people. I think that's what it was attempting to demonstrate. God had reestablished, so think about it, people get kicked out of his presence in the garden. We as a people group in Adam, him as our chief representative, right? Uh, they get kicked out. Adam and Eve get kicked out of God's holy presence. There is now a separation between heaven and earth, and it's our sin that has created that. God, in order to graciously protect us, kicked us out of His holy presence. He re-offered an opportunity for mediation, for redemption. In shadow form, they had the same faith we do. Abraham was accounted prior to even the Mosaic system even being instituted as the father of faith. He's acknowledged in Romans chapter 1 as it's by, it was Abraham's faith that saved him. Or Romans, it's in Romans. That his, it was his faith. I think it was Romans 3, Romans 4. Anyway, he's acknowledged as it was his faith that saved him. We are saved by faith. Faith through faith. It is the, the gospel of God that is the power of God to salvation, right? Um, before the Mosaic system was instituted. So he didn't even, he was offering sacrifices in the same way that uh, Cain and, you know, or the Abel was, right? In, uh, just after being kicked out of the garden. So then God reinstitutes this redemptive, this shadow form redemptive, um, option. It was, a, it was a covenant that he had given to the people to restore them, to preserve his seed that he had promised to Eve. And this, this system would point ultimately to the seed, Jesus Christ, of what Christ would ultimately accomplish on the cross. This system was observable, and it was dangerous. Very dangerous. Here's what it is. Here's what it means to be in the holy presence of God. Look at Israel. And you could have either seen it as, wow, what nation is like this that has a God like this and a law like this, and whoa, this is amazing. Or, wow, I don't, I don't want to be there. God's wiping these people out all the time. And every time it seems like they make a mistake, 15,000 people die, right? It's like really intense. And I think it was intense for a reason. It was to recognize 
that God is wrathful towards sin, that God will judge sin, and you can't have sin in the holy presence of God and expect to survive. That's why there was guardians between him and the holy presence, his holy presence. There was a mediator that went before him with an offering. Christ ultimately did that. That is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. That he is the ultimate. He is the re- this system ultimately pointed to Jesus Christ, who would go on our behalf into the Holy of Holies, the true Holy of Holies of God, before the throne of God, and offer his own blood on our behalf. And because he was perfect, he could, death could not hold him, right? That's the beauty of the gospel. That we confess Christ as our Lord and Savior, and him as a Redeemer, him as our Mediator the only way into the throne room of heaven, the only way that we can be restored in a rightful relationship with our Creator. It's beautiful. Now, communion acknowledges that. Communion is an extension of the Passover celebration. What was the Passover celebration? It was when God had provided a way out of Egypt. They were to offer up a lamb, the doorpost with the blood, and then the wrath of God would pass over them and wipe out everyone else who weren't by faith doing what God had prescribed. Do you have something to share? We're going we're gonna to get into it at some point in terms of the, the barring. I'm talking about that now. Right. And we have less than okay. 10 minutes. Yeah, something else I was going to mention is, you know, I know, you know some people have a hard time in terms of, you know, the, I guess our stance, if you will, you know, wanting to hear testimony when he's been baptized before we receiving the supper. It's not as if we're saying, hey, you have to be a member. But then, I mean, you have the view that some people say you should let anybody because they just need to examine themselves. But if, if we know it's clear that we would not let somebody who's been excommunicated, you know, and as elders, you know, lead, leaders have the keys, if you will, to the kingdom as far as, you know, binding and loosing, I just don't see why it's such a problem on the front end, you know, being, being mindful of that. Because people have a low view of the church, Greg. That's why. I just didn't want to say that. But. They have a low view of church governance. They have a low view of ecclesiology, of polity. They don't respect, think about it, most, especially in Western cultures, do not respect authority. Right. Have no respect for authority. It's and like he, Brian was saying, I think, last, last Lord's Day, you know, we just allow anybody to just, just cruise up, lay hands on somebody, like the Bible says, don't lay hands on somebody hastily, right, and baptize yeah. them. Yeah. You know, no, we wouldn't. Right. You know, the same concept applies with the, with the Lord's Supper. You know, and it, there's many things put in place in Scripture as far as ignorant persons, which so, are everywhere. Let me, let me get in this because I have very limited time. So the barring, this is where most of the debate occurs. And I think it's really important that we had set that foundation and recognizing the care and principle, the continuity between the Old and New Covenant, and then saying as a leader, right, and this is something we've wrestled with and struggled with for a long time, okay, to what extent do you actually stop someone from coming to the table? What kind of warnings do you give someone? So Greg brought up a good point. He said, well, if we provide the warning, uh, this is a, a, a uh, objection that has been raised. If we provide the warning, then it's really up to the person to examine themselves. Right, amen. But Greg, I think, brings up a very good point. What if this person was excommunicated from another church? We brought up the example of one of the, someone who's been excommunicated from our church wanting to you know, go to another church and then take communion because really he has more of a Roman Catholic view of church than he does an actual Protestant view. And what I mean by that is that he thinks that as long as I'm in church, I'm okay with God. Right? As long as I, I didn't went and did my confession, I did the things, checked the box with my family, and I'm just trying to love, love God and my family, I can live like hell throughout the entire week, abuse my family, abuse people around me, abuse the body of Christ, and not have to reconcile that. I can just attend a service and have the grace of God bestowed upon me that way. And I should be able to do that. You can't stop me from doing that and you can't tell me I'm not a Christian. Oh yes, I can. I absolutely can. You indicate that you're not a Christian by your actions. This is why we have the letter of James. Show me your faith by your works. I see you living like hell all week long. And you come in here thinking that the grace of God is going to be somehow bestowed upon you as though you check the box and you don't, you know, you're not devoted to the Lord in, in and to all the duties that you owe Him. You're not repentant of your sin. You know, you're withering dead on the tree. Most likely you're not even a believer, especially if you boast saying you're a Christian and I can't know your heart. 
as someone who has counseled you and shepherded you and wanting to see you walk with the Lord and honor your family and honor Christ in your life, but you're a drunken idiot and the police have to be called on you constantly and you're threatening people with guns and your kids are terrified of you. That's not Christianity, bro. Right? I should be able to go to another church and take communion. No, you know what I should do is I should call that pastor. What church are you going to? You have someone who has been excommunicated from our church, who is not reconciled with the church, and it's the church body, holistically speaking, not just our local assembly, but it's the body of Christ as whole they are unreconciled to, and we have committed them to Karim. What? Yeah, we, he is devoted to destruction. That's the exact words that Paul uses in terms of excommunication. He has been devoted to destruction. He over Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That hopefully, if he is truly in Christ, God will use this as a disciplinary opportunity to bring him back to himself. But he has been devoted to destruction. He has been turned over to Satan, the world, to be destroyed along with it. That's terrifying language. That's the actual continuity of the judgment that someone is devoted to when they have been removed from a church by the church. It's not just the leadership. It was the church as a whole's decision. Yes. Here, uh, Baird's got you back. It's not just the, uh, you know, staying on top of that guy to make sure he stays under discipline. No. It's also calling to warn the other church. Yes. You have a cancer yeah. walking into your doors that, that can spread through your church yes. if you allow it to be considered part of your body. Think of sin in the camp, you guys. It's the same Sin in the camp. What does it say? Purge the evil from among you. Now what happens if you allow this person in, you welcome him into the fellowship, as someone else said, bro, that guy was excommunicated, has not been restored to the body of Christ. And you're like, well, we just don't think of it that way. What are you inviting into the camp? Sin. And what did God do when sin came into the camp? Especially the holy presence of God. His body. He wipes people out. They're sick and dying among you. That's why they're sick and dying among you. And is God gracious? Does He not always wipe us out in our ignorance and things that we do and we presumptively assume that that's not going to happen in the New Covenant? Yes! I'm telling you right now, that's the case. That's why the Puritans held this church membership in such high regard. They would call their pastors and say, hey guys, you need to know this about Bro Whitebread. He's been attending uh, the Church of England, which is an apostate church. And he is a member of our church. We warned him. We sent a letter to him. He has not returned basically committed him, handed him over to Satan because he is attending an apostate church. They didn't have funds. They wrote. Sorry. Right? But that's, that's the reason why. I remember reading that and telling uh, Greg, I'm like, oh my gosh, bro, can you imagine if we did that today? And his response was, yeah, bro. Uh, that's how far we've gone astray. We should be doing that today. And since then, I take that view. I'm like, man, I need to call these other pastors and warn them, you have sin in the camp. And if you all of a sudden wonder why you have many sick and dying among you, well, it, there's a good indication. Either find it, purge it from you, call those to repentance, encourage them to be restored in the faith, to be restored to Christ in the body, or bar the table. Warn them. Warn them. And it's for the good of the body, not just the individual. I think that's what's so important. I think that's the point that Brian brought up. So, we hold this view that says, for our view for our visitors today, that if, if we have not heard your testimony, seen you be baptized, or, or know that you've been baptized and provided a public proclamation of your faith, we ask for people to forego the elements because we observe them weekly. Does that make sense? Now, let's say we're in the middle of service. We've been trying to work through this because I think we're mostly all in agreement with the things that I've already shared this, thus far. Can I get an eye? <laughs> Are we good? Yes. Okay, we're good. Thumbs up. All right. Um, that we're in agreement. What we struggle with is, wait a minute, what if, let's say, someone, a visitor's walking and visiting our church for the first time. We provide this warning in the announcement. Here's our, you know, here's our official stance on, the, on, the, uh, on communion. It's on the back of the bulletin. Please take a look at that. We, take, you know, we have a high view of the Lord's Word, His commands, and, His, and, and the warnings given about communion. Please see us. And people, you know, they don't hear that. And then the, another visitor walks in, right? And then we, right, here we are at the table. And now we're in this awkward situation where we've then opened up the table as administrating the ordinances, those offering it. We're saying that we're, we're a true church. 
we're pastors who are in good standing. That we are living lives devoted to Christ. As, as difficult as that is. We haven't disqualified ourselves and we are offering it to you as administers of the ordinance in good faith that you in clear conscience can walk up and partake with us and join us with us. If you cannot, you should, you should forego it. And people struggle with that. That's the difficulty people struggle with. Why? Because they lack the theology that I've spent now three weeks explaining. They lack that theological understanding. They don't hold the same view. And so what? Some get really upset. They don't want to discuss and walk through these things. And they leave. And others stay and remain and they work through it with us. But we've now implemented, as of last week, an opportunity for those who still not, we haven't had the chance to hear your testimony because we want to hear that. We want to know that you understand the gospel and have been baptized, right? That's an important thing. And that you're not living in gross sin. That's really important. That, that should be important for all discipline. of us. What's that? And that you're not under church discipline And that you're else. not under church discipline, right? Yeah. Exactly. Which would fall into the gross sin category, right? Um, why is that important? Because we want to be protective of the body. That's a pastoral thing. Let me, let me leave with this final point, okay? Also, when you think about the community aspect, this bond and pledge you're making to the community, okay? Think about this. As those who are among us, right, we have members in the church, we also have visitors here, right? What would happen if, like, we were honoring this from a pastoral, think about this as a pastoral extension through the body of Christ as we love one another. What should be on the forefront of our mind when we're looking around us, right, and you're walking down the aisle and getting ready to take it, as you're walking down, you're like, whoa, bro, white bread? Why aren't you taking communion today? Hey, visitors, why aren't you taking communion today? What's going on with your life, right? And you're like, this high view of communion, I can't do it, you guys, I can't take it today. I got in an argument with my wife on the way over here, and now I'm like, I just have this bitterness in my heart towards her, so I should probably pass. Get out of here. We need to get more as a loving community and go, okay, look, your, your argument doesn't disqualify you from the table. Yeah, you're struggling today. And then we give it opportunity to actually love and counsel and work through stuff together. And then there's some people who go, I've been living in gross sin unrepentant. You're like, whoa, we need to preach the gospel, call you to repentance, right? <laughs> you think about it. The beauty of it is, is there's this, think of the cherubim standing in front of the garden. Don't partake of something that is the Lord's inappropriately, but in the same sense, we look to one another and go, how can we love and better minister to the people around us? And then it opens up gospel opportunities to our children. Uh, I'll tell you this right now. Because of our view of, of communion, it has opened more conversations with my kiddos who are like, they want to do the thing too. And you're like, you don't get to do the thing. And I get to preach the gospel to my kiddos as to why this is so important. I just want to do the thing. No, 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 no. It's not just the thing, bro. Right? You don't get to walk up to the table flippantly and just take it just because we're all drinking the juice and bread. You don't get it. You don't get to take it. Why? Why don't I get to take it? Anybody who has kids, I'm sure, has that come up, right? Anybody who has kids, this has come up. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to pastorally want to care for the flock and want to care for one another, to be concerned about this. It's a good thing. People often look at it like, how dare you? No, no, no. How dare you? <laughs> when, you have, when you have the position that we've worked through so hard, you're not like, to me, when someone comes up and they have this attitude, they're, they're posturing. They're upset about our position. I'm like, here we go. I'm going to hear the same excuses, the same stuff, and they're going to treat it as though we're trying to be heavy-handed and harsh. When it comes from a desire to just want to honor Christ, want to honor His Word, and want to do the right thing when it comes to the warnings. I just want to do that as a pastor. And Jonathan, too, and all the leadership of the church and our church body as a whole. But we want to also honor our pledge and our commitment to one another. I think it's a good thing. I think it was designed that way on purpose. I think we've missed it. We've strayed away from it. So, with that said, um, we're, we've gone a little, little over, so I think we should close it up. But, I would say with that three-week, and thank you, Christian, for encouraging this, by the way. I think it was very beneficial. Some have mentioned to me that they've really appreciated this. Um, this is good. I, I'm glad that we've worked through this. Now, if you're still hung up, that's fine. It's still stuff you've got to work through. Give Jonathan and I an opportunity and Greg and Brian and others to work through this and hash through this with you. 
Give us an opportunity to do that. Allow us to walk through the Scriptures together. And let me say this, guys. If you find something in there and you're just like, no way, bro, there's no way, that's not what it means, fine. I can tell you this right now about all of us, that as we are all examining the Scriptures and working through it, we are happy to change our position. It's not as though we're so steadfast on this that we're not willing to hear reasoning from Scripture. Yes. I don't think it... And based on our position, I don't, I mean, even with, even among our own body, I don't, I don't think that there are differences that are so severe yeah. that warrant, like, you know, yeah. um, that would disqualify someone from the fellowship or no. that we can have nothing to do right. with one yeah, another. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, I'm just saying, I'm trying to go against the prevailing winds of modern evangelicalism yes. where if you disagree, you depart. It's actually really okay yeah. to disagree. That's actually yes. the reason why we extended this for three yeah. weeks. And, and today's sermon will actually be Exhibit B of that. Exhibit. Oh, perfect. Right. Okay. So. Of course, providentially as it works. So anyway, I hope, listen, I hope this has been a blessing to you guys. I know I've gone a little over today. Um, I know there are still probably questions out there. I want to be sensitive to that. Um, again, to echo Johnny's point, um, there are important hills to die on, right? There really are. And as a church, we just, you know, we really do, again, this is something that we've thought through and worked through. Uh, good recommendation, the Lord's Supper as a means of grace more than a memory by Richard Barcelos. Okay, again, that's the Lord's Supper for those watching on. Uh, as a means of grace more than a memory by Richard Barcelos. Good, and it's, it's a short read. I'm sure it would be a blessing to you. Um, he's a Reformed Baptist, so... I'm sure that I'd probably be in strong agreement. I haven't read the book, but I'll read it. Um, but with that said, um, thank you guys for the engagement, questions. Let's work through this together. Let's hash it out and continue our day in worship. I look forward to diving in to baptism next week. I'm sure maybe that might go on to another three-week uh, debate. That's great. I, I love it. I think this is great. So it's how we learn and work through things together is important as a community. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you again this time. I'm so blessed by my brothers and sisters here and their desire to want to honor you. Really just wanting to take your word seriously. I think that's just what it is. We want to take your word serious and we want to understand its practical implications and how we do life and do this worship service. Lord, that our worship service would be truly worship in honor of you. So I pray for the rest of our day together in Jesus' name. Amen.